Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss a one a two a one two three four <laughs> another beautiful day on the Victor Bravo Golf Course the sun is shining the birds are about and there's a sudden pause in the crowd Michael Michelson steps up to the tee box 15th hole here drivers recommended <laughs> is he a caveman because it's suddenly clubbed that one what do you reckon George <laughs> I mean did he hit that with the dictionary because that was a terrible read <laughs> oh g'day and welcome this is golf it's nice to have your company and I'm thrilled that you're here to meet Mr. Bob Stanton. He was a, um, geez, a member of the Australian, the European, the US PGA Tours back in the 60s and 70s, had success back in Australia in the 80s. Um, and he's part of golfing folklore because he was just so good, a naturally gifted golfer. Did he work enough? Well, you'll find out. Did he learn from some of the greatest players in the game? You will most Definitely find that out. He, uh, well, he's like a comet, you know? He just <laughs> shone super bright for this short period of time, and it literally could have been anything. Lost seven times on the US tour by a shot. He'll tell you about it. Famously, as a 20-year-old, he beat the great Arnold Palmer at the Australian Golf Club in Sydney, and that is an absolutely brilliant story. They all are. So I think you're going to really enjoy listening to Bob Stanton talk about Bob Stanton and his life and his life in golf. I know I certainly have just loved the experience. It's a two-part chat because there was literally just too much to put into one discussion. So we began with how he feels he sits with the name or the, the, the title, The Enigma. Here's Bob. I think you'll really enjoy this part one of Bob Stanton. Well, it, it, it probably is because there's been a lot of, I guess, mystery, so to speak, about my career. And a lot of it, it is just that. It's just myths and innuendos. I'm guilty as charged. Okay. Well, I, I, I mean, I actually really like the phrase of someone being an enigma because it's what no one can really put a, a title on you or a handle on you apart from one that says nothing. So it's, it's quite a nice thing to be. Let's start at the start, Bob. How did you get into golf? My dad didn't play. My mother didn't play. But there was also a there was a old set of clubs in the garage at home yeah. that my dad never used. 
And uh, I grew up in the Botany mascot area, which you'd be familiar with, right near the airport. Yeah. And uh, when I was a young fellow, when I was 10, 11, 12, and picking up golf clubs, we had uh, courses like the Lakes, Bonnie Doon, and East Lakes courses right at my back door. So I was able to throw the clubs over my shoulder and head over and jump over the fence because in the in those days there wasn't an expressway going through those courses, which you will remember today, of course. Yeah. So I started to play at those courses and, um, interestingly, I joined a lot of older guys who were also jumping the fence and we yeah. had a little group that we used to play and they – used to take me in like their son. Right. You weren't and, called the fence jumpers or anything like that, were you? Oh, uh, <laughs> well, look, I, I remember, I remember um, going, jumping the fence at East Lake was one thing, but jumping the fence at the Lakes Golf Club, which was very private, of course, Yeah. Uh, and in later years I uh, did a lot of caddying there, which is a, it's an interesting story because I remember jumping the fence at the Lakes the, one day, and I was totally illegal, and they used to have a ranger on a horse. So here I am, you know, chipping and bunkers and I'm carrying on there like I'm a member of the lakes. Mm. And here comes this ranger charging on his horse, um, grabs me by the ears, so to speak, and marches me up to the clubhouse. And uh, a great story that uh, a guy called Barnes was a secretary manager who gave me an enormous dressing down and somehow sent me home, not in a in a paddy wagon, but you know, yeah. sent me home with a with a bit of a clip over the ears, and I've never forgotten that. And um, in later years, when I played as a professional at the Lakes, Barnes was still the secretary there, and we just laughed. <laughs> So hard right. about that story. So it's interesting. You can imagine as a kid how terrified I was. Yeah, well, yeah. it's it's interesting because that could be the sort of moment that would actually put you away from the game. That could literally that that could be a. So what was it about golf at that stage that actually kept you playing when you've been given a clip, as you say? Well, I, I think look, I, I just always had this natural aptitude and natural talent to play golf, and everybody told me I was good. So. Yeah. That always keeps you in the game. So that was my early days, and uh, then then from there, that that passion never left me to play the game. But, however, when I was in school, I was kind of good at football and I was good at cricket, so I had to make this, this call about where I wanted to go in terms of my education or sport. Yeah. And I, I must say I was very ordinary at the education game. <laughs> You know, I was one of these guys that used to, you know, uh, cram for my test on the tram going into school. Yeah. So uh, from that, I made a decision because everyone said I was good. I left school. I left school very young when I was 15. Yeah, wow. And uh, I was nurtured by some uh, greats at the time, a guy called Eric Kremen. Um, found out about me. I think people were just talking behind my back about this young yeah. kid. So you must have you must have actually been really like really quite special then. If there's if there's a groundswell of of talk about you, 
Oh, oh, absolutely. Because I mean, um, when you when you think back, if you go a little bit forward, where I left school, and I went and uh, did my education, because in those days, when you wanted to turn professional, you actually did an apprenticeship. So you went into a golf shop and you learned how to run a golf shop and how to fix clubs and how to deal with members. So that was my um, time with Dan Cullen, who was the pro at St. Michael's Golf Club, which you would have played St. Yep. Michael's. Yep. So I did a three-year apprenticeship there, which Eric Kremen, who was a great player at the time, he was in that era of Norman von Nieder and those greats, early days, Peter Thompson. He introduced me to Dan. He took me over. He said, Dan, have a look at this kid. He hit a couple of balls. Well, I hit six golf balls, and Dan said, you got the job, son. So <laughs> three, three years right. under Dan, and let me tell you, he was a hard yeah, master. He was so hard. So I didn't get to play a lot of golf other than late in the afternoons, but on Mondays we used to have um, apprentice pro days. So I had, you know, a great time playing against my other peers around the other clubs like Kalara and, and uh, um, Eleanor and all those places where they had profession, assistant professionals. And Dan was a... He was he was very very um, smart because he didn't tell me a lot about my swing. He just let me go along and I played golf. Dan, by the way, was a great player in his own right. Yeah. And he 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 told me a story one time where he played with the great Walter Hagen, who uh, has been a great American champion for so yeah. many years. And um, and Dan was picking his brain about you know. Walter, you know, what, can you give me some tips? Can you know, what, what do I need to know about the swing? And he said, Dan, there's three things you need to play golf. You need a pair of hands to swing the club, a pair of feet to stand on the ground, and no brains. <laughs> and, and you so, know what? I think, Andrew, if I'd have just taken that yeah. <laughs> forward and not been so complicated because I was just a natural golfer. Yeah. And, as you may or may not realize, as you as you get to um, a point, because you you're showing promise and you are good, people want to come around you and want to change this and change that. So that's well, they, about what. Yeah, happens. they want to they they want to fix your foibles, I suppose. Correct. Just just before you go on, when you started at um, St Michael's, were you still playing with that first set of clubs? And do you remember what they were? Oh no, I don't I don't remember oh, okay. what they were, but the, they were. Pretty ordinary set of clubs. So yeah. with um, the groundswell of confidence in my abilities, yeah. um, along came, there was a very <laughs> uh, a very generous company at the time called PGF. Yes. Precision Golf Forges, you may remember that. Name. Yeah. Not around anymore. No. A guy called Claire Higson came into my life, who was the CEO, and he took me under his wing uh, they gave me clubs, and I've represented PGF for quite a long time. Which okay, but so this is along. You'll see how that fits in. So this is before you turned professional. So this is during yes. your during your servitude down there at St Michael's. Yeah, correct. That's a th- that was three years. Yeah. And then, and um, would you be surprised to know that um, lots of older professional golfers tell a really similar start to their golfing lives of jumping fences and having a yeah. red hot hard taskmaster making them pushing them into the game in a in a certain way, but a way of genuine um, discipline, I suppose. 
Yeah, look, I think I think that's all we had. Yeah. You know, you look at the young guys today, they've got everything at their feet, haven't they? You know, they're, they're invited to be in, to, to play on pennant teams and those kinds of things. They, they're always looking for the next talent so that they can nurture them into the club and be part of the club and be part of pennants. Those days didn't really exist, you know, in, in, in my time. Okay, so you had the choice, and you said you caddied as well, so you had the choice to either shop golfer or shop shop pro or obviously playing pro, and we know from your statistics and your history and your success, you were a very, very good player with a very, very good start. Well, that's right. So the idea at the time was if you had a background in club golf, if you didn't make it in professional golf, you had something to fall back on. Yeah. And I think that that kind of mentality still is a little bit there today where a lot of guys that were in my category, like I remember like Colin McGregor, I don't know whether you remember that name. No. Colin was a great player at the time, but he he, he played a little bit of tournament golf but finished up the pro at New South Wales for many, many years. Okay. But that, that type of theme happened along the way to a lot of players. I, on the other hand, had this natural ability to be, um, I guess, a winner because after I came out of my time at St Michael's Golf Club, I immediately started making inroads and winning tournaments. I think the first four-round tournament I won was the City of Sydney Open at Moore Park. Yeah. And that really kind of started my career on a local scene, and then uh, as that um, success grew and I won more and more tournaments locally, um, the great Claire Hickson wanted to send me overseas. So I finished up going into to New Guinea first, which I'll tell you a little bit in a minute. Yeah. So did you, Bob, so you, you won that first four-round tournament at, um, at Moore Park. Did you... Were you expecting to win? Like was that was this just part of your psych that you just – Going well, yeah, Bob Stanton. Yeah, yes, there, I'll win. Was. I mean, I mean, I had, I had this natural talent, and I had a natural talent which uh, gave me the ability to win. Yeah, and so I was winning. You know, going back to when I was an apprentice professional, I used to win every Monday against the the apprentices. Yeah, uh, when I used to play in some pro ams during the time I was an apprentice, those kind of things. I remember. A great story. There used to be a, and I was still an apprentice, but I was a pro. And um, we had a tournament called the Yarrawonga Open down yeah. on the border. Yeah. And um, uh, a guy who was kind of helping me nurture my, sorry, it was just outside of my apprenticeship. So I was just turned pro. They took me down there, and interestingly, a bookie used to book, make a book on the Yarrawonga Open. Nobody knew me, so they got big odds on this young kid, Bob Stanton, right, to yeah. to win the Yarrawonga Open. And um, the guy that took me down, the guy called Peter Mills, who was pro at New South Wales many, many, many years ago, great, great guy, Western Australian. And he took me down there and put the cash on. And uh, <clears throat> interestingly, he came up to the last hole, one shot ahead of me. 
and he purposely made a double bogey and let me win so he could get all the cash. Oh, my God. <laughs> so he's tanked for you. So that's so. Now, were you were you punting on yourself at the time? Were you, are you a punter? And you know, well, that's that's a, it's an interesting point. Um, yes, is the answer because in those days when my I came out of my profession, uh, assistant pro days, and started playing, you know, really in in small proams and things like that. I had a, a group of guys that. I used to play with at the Australian, at New South Wales, uh, the Lakes, and they were called the Lavender Hill Gang. Mm. Now, you and I have a common friend in the fly. Yeah, so you're talking about Packer and his mates. Packer, Family Man, Garbo, Trains, they all had a nickname. Yeah. And they all used to show up at the club for lunch and then play golf in the afternoon and gamble. So I was all part of that. Now, as a kid, I was making no money. So I had to play really good golf. Otherwise, I couldn't, I couldn't pay. So there were a group of gamblers, businessmen, bookies, jockeys, the whole great education for me into competing. And it's like Lee Trevino once said one time, pressure is only when you're playing for $1,000 and you haven't got $1,000 to pay. Yeah, right. Yeah. They, so they how, were the day. They, they taught me a lot, those guys. I was going to say, how, how important was were, were the lessons you learnt there in professional golf? Because like hearing the fly talk about those days and playing against Packer and, you know, I mean, <laughs> I mean the fly's hilarious. He, oh, yeah. You know, he, so he's playing off, he's a scratch golfer playing off 12 or something and it's like it's hilarious, oh, yeah. his stories. Yeah, yeah. So if you're part of that game, you don't even know what anyone's genuinely playing off. So. Well, but that's exactly right. So you can imagine I've got no handicap. I've got to go out and shoot 64s and 5s and 6s to just maybe break even or maybe yeah. just win. And so were you bankrolling yourself? Teacher, hey? Were you bankrolling yourself or did you have someone? No, I was I was uh, um, doing my own thing. Mm. Um, and um, in, the, in those early days, um, I was getting a small amount of money from PGF yep. as well as clubs. Um, so, you know, when you're a kid and you're, you know, getting a couple of grand a year for something to play golf, you think yeah. you're rich. Especially yes. in those days. You can buy a house for 4000 so Yeah, right. Interesting days. Yeah, and, and, they, and they literally sound like great days. And I'd love to hear some Packer stories, but I actually want to get to your, your pro History and the and especially the the tournament that you won that really set you alight in a in a true sense, which was knocking over Arnold Palmer in the playoff. Yeah, well, that probably started going back to Claire Higson, who yeah uh, took me under his wing, and I'd done so much in Australia. They said, "Oh, we're going to send you away." So the first thing they did, they sent me to New Guinea to play in the New Guinea Open. Now, these are the days when, you know, you flew Qantas, but they had those triple tails. You remember the Constellation? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. No. The two, big, yeah, big uh, long planes with the triple tails. And yeah. The, the tail went, you know, some signs <laughs> inside and I was down the back naturally getting sick. Um, so I, I arrived in uh, Port Moresby, uh, clubs over the shoulder, and I was met there by the representative of PGF and I was put in a very – small plane, never been in one before in my life, and we went over to Medan where the New Guinea Open 
was to be played. And I was billeted. I had people that took me into their home and took care of me. It was all arranged by PGF. So I was very excited and I decided I've got to go out to the course. So I went out to the course and, you know, look, I'd, I'd been around <laughs> a few tournaments. There's normally scoreboards and ropes and, you know, there's things that make it look like a tournament. It was fairly bare. I said, well, okay. It's, it's obviously not a real big event. So anyway, I... Uh, I did some practice, didn't see any many people on the course and, and I called for my tea time and I was playing with Andrew Daddo and, and Billy Hill. Mm. So anyway, I got out to the course the next day. Well, she cut a long story short. There were three people that played in the Australian <laughs> Open, Andrew Daddo and Bill Hill and Bob Stanton. <laughs> and on my resume, Andrew, it says New Guinea Open champion. Right. I was going to say like – so I, I can't. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a golfing cult, big golfing culture there now. Maybe not a big golfing culture, but I can't imagine back then it was there was much to it. Like it would have been expats and Englishmen and you know the other people hiding out in New Guinea from whatever misdemeanors they've done. <laughs> Escapees, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, look, that was my first international tournament. So boom, first on the list, international victory. So from that, again, PGF said, Bob, we'd like to send you over to Europe. So in 1966, um, I set out on a campaign to play in Europe. And again, the PGF Connections <clears throat> sent me over there, took good care of me on the ground, uh, made sure I was safe and, and got to the tournaments. And if you look at that year, I won the German Open by seven shots, um, I led the Irish Open till the very last minute. Guy called Christy O'Connor won it. So I'd had a very successful year in Europe, but I didn't like Europe at all. Okay, I didn't what like was the weather? I didn't like yeah. the weather. I didn't like anything about it. And always in, I think we have in our psyche, America is always the pinnacle of you know the game in terms of professional golf, and it certainly was at that time as well. So I had you know, um, uh, over time, met some of these greats. And uh, I, I remember um, playing with the great Gary Player. When I, just before I went over to, to Europe, I played with the great Gary Player at Kionga in the Australian Open. So I was the young up-and-comer. Yeah. And uh, they paired me with Gary. So, you know, pretty, pretty nervous type of a thing for... Yeah, because Gary had already run a few Australian Opens. Yeah. So Kiong was a par 74 in those days. So off we go, and uh, Gary is 10 under par after 10 holes. <laughs> I'm going, what is – I'm in the wrong well, league here. Yeah, yeah. It was the most phenomenal golf, and I don't know if you watched much of Gary's golf, but he had a, a wonderful putting style, a little, kind of like a little bit of pop stroke, and he never looked up when he putted. So he hit the ball and he listened to the ball go in the hole. So I can give anybody any tips about putting is keeping your head and eyes still very important thing. He did it beautifully. He never saw a putt go in the hole. So I uh, I got my taste of kind of international, I guess, uh, golf through Gary. Yeah. And I took that to Europe. And so playing with Gary, did you – I mean, you said you were like, I'm in the wrong league here. Did you? So did you actually think you're in the wrong league 
or did you in your brain are you going because you like you're a confident and, and a yeah. confidence player? Mm. Did you do you going shit? He's good, but actually, I, I could probably get him next week or you know tomorrow. I reckon could be another day. Or did was he literally just streets and streets ahead by the end of the first thirty six holes? Well, I, I think uh, if. I, I'm not sure what I was thinking about at the time other than I was just in awe of this. Yeah. Because he, it's a par 74. He shot 62 twice in that tournament. Jeez. Okay. Do you remember played, what you shot? Nicholas played that year as well. He shot 62. So, right. I mean, I, I, I played well. I was shooting in the 60s, but nothing like that. It okay. just – it was an introduction to international golf. And yep. I remember like it was yesterday when Gary got the check for the Australian Open and the trophy, he went straight to the practice team before he had to leave town. Okay, he was that, he was that disciplined. Okay, so I was, I was, I guess. Did you start in doing awe, that in awe? But I also had, wow, you know, these guys are good, kind of thing. So yeah. When I went so to Europe, um, it was a different story, different set of different different greats over there. You know, at the time, the Tony Jacklands were just starting at the time. And some of the greats, Christy O'Connor and some of the greats that played the European tour, Di Rees was just still playing a little bit. So, and so was, was Thompson playing then? Peter Thompson playing in the Europe? Thompson was playing then. But he yeah. played a lot He played a lot in Asia. Okay. He played a lot in Asia. So did Kel, played a lot in Asia. But he did okay. play in Europe and a lot of success in Europe, yes. Okay. So from, from that, so that story goes through to in, at the end of 1966, once I was done in Europe, I had this thing I wanted to play in America. So I set about finding a routing back through Florida. I put my name in to go to Q School, which you had to do in those days. It was a whole different format of what the tour is today. I went to Q School and um, I went to West Palm Beach and played at the PGA National, which is still that course today that they play. Yeah. And um, got my card. I finished second in Q School. I got my card and then came home at the end of 2000, uh, sorry, uh, 66, 1966. 
Well, uh, which I'm really interested in. Like, like just those. Bit, surely, all things like it, playing the British Open that surely drives you for greatness. Given you actually did pretty well. I, I did well, and thank you for reminding me. Uh, we played at Muirfield that year. Yeah, and um, I had had some really good practice rounds. There was a lot of publicity about you know as a young kid from Australia, and. Again, you know, my mentality is oh, I'm going to play my first British Open, I'm going to win it. That's just the mentality that I had. Yeah. So I had played very well and I was in the last few groups and played with uh, the great Dave Maher, uh, a guy who uh, became a good mate and was a PGA winner already in America. Yeah. And he and I were paired in a group going down uh, the first I hit the ball maybe off the tee about one yard into the rough. Never could find the ball. Right. People everywhere. The rough was about waist high in those days, by the way. There's, I remember some old photos. They had Gary Player. It was up to my waist. It was up to, up to his elbows. You know? <laughs> okay, he, yeah, right. Yeah, it was shocking rough. Yeah. And here, here we are in the last couple of groups. I can't find the ball. Now, Andrew, I, I don't know whether you'll ever have to experience walking back to the tee while everybody is waiting to tee off. Yeah. Thousands of people standing down the fairway, <laughs> and I've got to go back and hit another ball off the tee. Not much fun. So right. anyway, I made seven on the first, and that kind of thwarted my, um, uh, I guess, opportunity to, to finish high, but I still yeah. had a good finish. And you okay. know, it was the one and only British Open I played, by the way. Yeah, so why didn't you play any more? I think it was that ambivalent mentality that I that I nurtured. That yeah. I, yeah, majors, they're, they're just another tournament, you know. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. You, but you, you would have been nervous about playing your first Open though, surely. Yeah, look, uh, I think nerves are only something that relate to your inner confidence and your perception of your ability to get the job done. I think nervousness is more about uncertainty. That's the way I feel. And okay. I was very confident in my game that I could play at the highest levels and think that I would always do well and I think that I could win. I've always had that ability. Yeah. Um, even playing here locally, you know, I still have the competitive nature. You don't want to get beat. I, um, I should I just point out that you are 75 and still playing at plus two. Yeah, correct. So, yeah. so do you play? Do you have Masters pennants? Are you in the Masters pennants team? And- no, I didn't have any amateur golf. Right. No. Oh, okay. So you're still professional, Bob yeah. Stanton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've right. always maintained professional status. Oh, so you wouldn't uh, give it away so you can win a win a, uh, a Masters pennant for? Uh- no, 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 no. That's that's you know that's no, kid no, stuff. Not when you've been where I've been, Andrew. Yeah, of course. Okay. That's maybe for you. You know, a nice six yeah. handicapper. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. I've interrupted. Um, That's all sorry. right. That's all right. <laughs> so you get yourself to America, get to the Q, the, the Q school, qualify for the US tour. So now you must be – and can I just I, – I just want to put one thing to you that you – I saw in an interview that as a young golfer, like you were Norman-esque, weren't yeah. you? Like you? Like that, your skill level was literally Norman-esque. That's not yeah. overstating it. Yeah, that's that's correct. And uh, after getting back home, 
I, I didn't realise that I didn't want to play any in the tournaments. It was it was tournament time. So at that time, you had the Dunlop International, the Australian Open, you had various other, because that's the, our season here in Australia, which is like your November, December period, which it is yeah. still today. Um, so my mother had entered me in the Dunlop International. And I thought, oh, you know, I really, yeah, no, I'm done. I've had a big year, uh, you know. And that, that was the beginning of my sookie, yeah. ambivalent kind of attitude. Oh, I don't want to play anymore, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So anyway, that that led into me playing in the Dunlop International, which was – it was an interesting time, Andrew, which it, it, it doesn't happen today. But in those days, you had Nicholas, you had Player, you had Palmer, and you had all these internationals that used to come out and play in our major championships. Our – major championships here were very much sought after, almost like the Australian Open tennis is today. Yeah. They all come and played, all came and played. It was kind of like one of their highlights to win an Australian Open or similar. So, so uh, what do you think happened to, the, to that status of the Australian leg of the tour? Uh, you mean where it is today? Yeah, it's a bit yeah. sort of like, you know, they, they're begging and they're begging the Australian golfers to come and Play, but maybe it's what you're saying about being ambivalent from playing a year in America. You're tired. You've had enough, and is that what sort of look? I think cushioned the, I the interest. Yeah, it, it's a it's a conversation we've had a lot of about why the Australian tour has gone where it's gone, and I think that, I, especially today, I think first of all. From, from a business point of view, from a business model, a golf tournament, you have to start with television rights. And interestingly, in Australia, you have to pay the television studios yeah. to do the telecast versus other parts of the world, you you know, they sell the rights, you know. So it's, it's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. It's in the reverse. So you've got to pay the television stations to televise it. Then you've got to pay appearance money. These guys want big money to show up. Even our, you know, our great, our greats, the Adam Scotts of the world, and, you know, they they all, you know, the management companies are all pitching for it. And I don't think that there's, um, they, they just haven't kept the standards up in terms of prize money because I don't think there's a lot of, companies in Australia, and, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll just digress a little bit and talk about Toyota, who I had a business association with for a long time. They used to say to me, Bob, you know, you know, all the, uh, the marketeers are coming to us. They want us to sponsor the Australian Open. They want us to sponsor this. I said, well, look, if, if, if you're a company and you, you're a new brand, maybe it's a branding exercise, but why do you need to lend your name to an Australian Open. Um, so I don't think there's the mentality of companies to tip money into into tournaments. I think if they do, it's a lot of money and they don't really have it in their budget. So yeah. I think there's a number of factors there that really have just not allowed the tour to just go forward. To keep, yeah, keep climbing. It's All right, a, so we're, we're, it's a bit so we're back. Too, by the yeah. way. Oh, it's, yeah, it is. And, and I think COVID's crawled a lot of um, things as well. So hopefully we'll... 
we'll get through the other side of Christmas and we'll get the Australian Open and it'll be a big and exciting, you know, event yeah. and yeah. we'll get the, the, the bigger start. players. Yeah, yeah hopes, fingers start. crossed. So there you are at the Dunlop. Yeah, there I am at the Dunlop. And um, look, a wild, wild week of weather. It just blew a gale. Um, Australian club in those days, it's the old Australian golf course, very wide open, not many trees, so very lengthy and very, very difficult. And I think if I remember right, par 72 in those days, which it still is, I think Palmer and I tied on 290. Now, how that happened was Palmer shot 68 in the last round in a gale, and I think I shot 72, but I came to the last hole, par five, and had to make a birdie to tie him. So I hit a good drive down the fairway and I stood in the fairway and I was told later that Palmer came, it was downwind, big time downwind. Palmer came down out of the clubhouse and tried to get all the people to move from around the back of the green, thinking that greens were hard, downwind, could hit it a bit long. There was a lot of low-lying bush in back of the green. And he tried to get, this is how competitive he was, wanted to get all the people moved from the back of the green because this young kid might hit it long and might get into trouble and I'll win kind of thing. So no anyway, kidding. nobody moved, right? Get Nick, <laughs> Mr. Palmer. Yeah, We're yeah. Australian. We're Australian. Yeah, mate. Yeah, mate. <laughs> so you, you would want to know, my four iron went a bit long, hit the crowd, came up short of all the, all the crap at the back of the green. So moving forward, hit a little chip and run eight iron, up about you know, a foot and a half in the hole, made a birdie, tied Palmer. So now, you know, everyone's going crazy because now we've got this sudden death playoff. And, and how's the crowd? How big is the crowd? Oh, well, in, in those days, again, if you, you have a look at the old footage, there was no ropes. Everyone, as soon as you hit a shot, everybody swarmed. Yeah. There was no crowd control whatsoever. So everyone was manic. And they were running down <laughs> to the tee, running down the fairway. Yeah. Look, uh, crowds are hard to establish, but, you know, lots and lots and lots of people. Okay. And, it, sorry, and, and just one other quick question. Did, did, not the, did the Masters crowds, would they not fend Palmer's ball back into play? Is that was it Palmer that they did that for, or Nicholas? I can't remember. Well, well um, I, I'm not sure that's true. Oh, okay, no worries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I might have yeah, made it. But, but I, I anyway. would think I would think it would be Palmer's ball. Yeah, that they would have got back into play because they hated Nicholas in those days. You know, Minnesota okay. Minnesota Fats was his nickname. Right. You'd have okay. seen him in those early days. He was very chubby, crew cut. <laughs> Different kind of a style of guy. Yeah, and, right. And of course, Palmer was the hero. So the Australian club in those days, you've played the Australian, obviously. Yeah, yeah. The 10th hole at the Australian was the first hole. Okay, Same, That's right? heading south. You know, off, off elevated tee, down the yeah. fairway, almost the same kind of hole, except it was very – yeah, you know, the course in those days, very dry, very linksy, scrubby type of thing, you know. So we go down, we both hit a good drive. Um, I've 
I'm away, I take a seven iron and hit it four feet from the hole. And he gives me that hitched up pants sniffy <laughs> thing, you know, that he does, you know, Mr. Palmer. Yeah. And just gives me that look, you know, that Palmer look. So anyway, he gets up there and gives it his, you know, usual twirl and flail and hits it over the green. And over the green was like a drop-off. So I'm sitting there four feet away. He's over there rattling around. And I think, what's he going to do? So he takes this kind of a scrubby five-iron little chip-and-run thing, bumps it up the bank and gets it just over the edge and it just scrambles onto the green, finishes about 20 feet above the hole. And I go, ha-ha. <laughs> Got him. This is too easy. <laughs> yeah. So up he gets. Bang, knocks it in for par. I get up there, lip it out. Right. Tight hole. That's golf, you see. Never, never can take anything for granted. Next hole, um, I hit a seven iron. I think I was away both times. I hit a seven iron up there about 20 feet away. He hit a very, very ordinary shot. I think he might have had too many scotches the night before. It was a very (laughs) ordinary shot. And um, cut a long story short, he's three-putted, I two-putted, end of, end of story, won the Dunlop International, which really vaulted me into the international golfing community spotlight. Okay. And so when you – so you know you've got the playoff with, with Palmer. So do you, do you rate yourself a chance then? Or are you, are then you're sort of going, well – well, it would be losing to Mr. Palmer. Yeah, you know. look, I think, you know, look, I, I think when you're young, you, you have this naivety about you that, you know, it's kind of like I used to say, okay, well, yeah, so what? You know, like, yeah. I'm just you were 20, there. right? I knew I was, I knew I was good. I said, so I'm just going to just do what I know how to do. Yeah. I know how to hit seven irons and eight drives and I know how to play. I'd gotten okay. to you know, this point with Palmer in very difficult conditions as a 20-year-old and, um, you know, I, was, I wasn't really phased by it. I've never been of that mindset to be intimidated by anybody really. And, and of course, throughout my career I've played with the best of the best. Yeah. So it's, it's something, that, something I think you're just kind of born with. You have this inner confidence thing which I've already, already taken to, you know, to, to my golf and my business and whatever. So there he is, Mr. Bob Stanton. That's part one. It's part one. There's part two coming, and I'll load that up next week. Um, but, geez, isn't he great? It's, look, I, I know what's coming in the next part of it, and it's really interesting his his take on his own success and foibles and what worked and what didn't and what he might do differently if he had the time again is is definitely very interesting and very very worthwhile. So I hope you enjoyed part one of Bob Stanton the Enigma. Part two is coming shortly. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 